Well, I confess I'm very excited to uh, open up the Word this morning with you. That's why I get a clock on the pulpit before I begin, because where I end, you know, nobody knows when we uh, start a series with the topic on expository preaching. So I'm preaching on preaching this morning. Expository preaching is sequential exposition, and this is a topical sermon on expository preaching. How ironic, but I'm excited to, to do it. But first, let me ask you a question on a personal note. How's your Sunday going so far? You good? Good? Did you get good sleep last night? You feel like you were energized? You maybe ate breakfast? Were, were people friendly to you this morning? With the, with the signs out in the lobby clearly marked in terms of where you were supposed to go, you know? Um, is the seating comfortable? How's, how's the cushion feel? And are you liking who you're sitting next to? I mean, nobody has to look around. It's all right. I mean, how's that going? Is the music all right? I mean, too contemporary, not, conserva- not conservative enough, not contemporary enough, um, how about the bulletin? Can you read that? I mean, is that helpful for you, the announcement time? I, you know, just checking in with you. Whether you've been attending for 30 or 40 years, we're a 40-year-old church, or this is your first time, ask yourself this question. On the most meaningful level, what brought you here this morning? What brought you here? Now, I, I would venture to say that most of us would and should say the glory of God. Functionally, though, I would say that most of you come to a church for the preaching. And if the preaching is satisfying to you, if it's feeding you, if it's helping your appetite with the word of God and with Christ, then you're satisfied and you come back. And if the preaching is not so good for you or in general, then like me, I, I'm the same as you. I, you know, I'm not so excited to come back if the preaching isn't feeding me. Preaching is, in many ways, the foundation of our experience in church. And what I'm not saying by this is that we need to be caught up in me as an expositor. Not at all. Again, if the preaching wasn't good, I wouldn't be here. I, and if I was a participant, I wouldn't come. I, I have to come to a place where the preaching feeds. And preaching is almost passe in church culture today. People are disregarding preaching, or there's preaching that's still going on in mainstream churches, but the importance of it and the relevance of it and the significance of it, and it being the foundation of the church, is sort of passe. Connecting with people is more important today in terms of the narratives of churches than preaching. The preacher should just share. He should just communicate. He, he typically is a modern feel-good guy who's motivating you to keep going in life. Preaching is touted more as a conversation. In our, in our anti-authority culture, preaching just doesn't really fit. But at the core level, I would say that even with all those narratives, believers want to be preached to regularly from the Word. 
not from a haranguing, um, frothing-at-the-mouth preacher, but someone who's clearly communicating truth about God, about Christ, with a clear gospel message to the heart. We need that. We know that we need it. It's like eating a healthy meal when you've been eating McDonald's all the time or you've been eating garbage all the time. Eventually, you begin to crave meat or salad or something that's going to be nutritious. And that's why we should come to church. So beginning this sermon series, again, there's books on the back table to read and buy and think through. We also have a philosophy of ministry paper that you can just take that's on expository preaching. But beginning this series is to begin a series with the theme that I think is the most important one, and that is expository preaching. Expository preaching breeds health in church. It is the way forward towards having a healthy church. All nine themes that we're going to cover through the summer are are born out of the soil of the Word of God, out of the soil of Scripture. And expository preaching holds high the Scripture and its authority. Everything should originate with the Word of God. If you're rating the importance of the nine marks of a healthy church, according to the book series, which there are more themes and topics that make up a healthy church. It's not the nine marks of a healthy church. It's just nine of them that we're going through. All these categories come from the scripture. So as you rate them by importance, describing, defining, and prescribing church health, expository preaching is at the ground level. It's the foundation point. Everything falls into place if you get expository preaching right. If the word is right in the pulpit, then the church health categories should fall into place. It's what a pastor should give himself to is the preaching of the word of God. And it's what a congregation should demand of the preacher is for him to be an expositor. Expository preaching is a way of preaching and thinking that is cultural. It, it brings a culture of the inherent authority of the word of God here. The word of God is what helps us to think. It helps us to understand church and what it takes to make a healthy church. It's the basis for church. Otherwise, if you don't have the word of God and explaining and expositing and teaching the word of God as what sets the culture for church, that everybody is showing up and really trying to figure out in their own mind what we're supposed to be doing here. What, why are we here? What's connecting us? What, what are we supposed to be a part of if we're not foundationally a part of the word of God? Mark Dever in his book, Nine Marks, says this is so important that if you were to miss this one and happen to get all other eight marks right, in a sense, they would be accidents. You would just have to, you would just have happened to get them right. They may be distorted because they wouldn't have sprung from the word. They would not continually be reshaped and um, fashioned and refreshed by the word of God. When the priority of the word is established, you have the single most important aspect of church life. Growing health is virtually assured and God acts by his spirit through his word. That's Mark Dever. 
In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he gave Timothy an overarching, sweeping instruction. He said to Timothy, what, in 2 Timothy 4? He said to him, form a committee, right? No, no. Take a survey, right? You got to do that. Spend your time. Timothy, you better go on visitation. Visit people. Read a book, Timothy. Go to the latest conference on trends. Become a pop culture guru. No, he didn't say any of these. He told Timothy to preach the word. So this morning, if you have an outline, we're answering four questions. We're going to talk through four ideas surrounding expository preaching. What, first of all, why preaching should be the church's priority. Preaching in general should be the priority. It's bold proclamation. That's what preaching is. It's bold proclamation. If you've ever done it before, you know that there's a difference between teaching and preaching, and it's hard to describe the difference. But doing this is different than just sitting and explaining things. When I preach, I feel my strength leave me. And it's something that is spiritually dynamic where I'm giving myself to you, but more it's giving truth I'm clarifying and explaining and explaining truth for you from my heart, from the word of God, where the spirit of God is taking that and implanting it in your hearts. That's preaching. It's different than teaching. If I were to just stand up and teach for an hour or two, I wouldn't be nearly as exhausted as I am after I preach. It's bold proclamation. Jesus on Uh, the mountainside before he ascended up to the right hand of the father in Matthew 28, he said, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. There's command language here in terms of what everybody is called to do. We're called to explain and teach. And the gift of teaching is part of the church and it's part of preaching. It's the accurate explanation of scripture. Second Timothy 2.15, present yourself to God as what? One approved, rightly handling the word of God, a worker who has not to, no need to be ashamed. It's someone who gives themselves, listen to this, to the work of teaching and preaching. It's hard work to bring the word of God. And again, this is not about me. This is just because if you don't live it, if you don't know what that's like, you need to feel that because the scripture says preaching in terms of the study, the clarification, mining the gold, bringing it to the surface, making it clear, trying to hit the heart, that's work. It's the work of ministry. Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. It's work to rightly handle the word of truth. A lot of people handle the truth. They handle it like a power tool in an unwieldy way, but it's rightly handling it. How serious was Paul to Timothy about this? 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I read it earlier. But listen, I charge you in the presence of God. God is watching. God is the witness, Timothy. You man of God, I'm passing the mantle on to you. And it's the presence of God and Christ Jesus who's right there watching you, who's to judge the living and the dead. The stakes are eternal. The stakes are forever. Eternal heaven, eternal hell, what's going to be the difference maker? And by his appearing in his kingdom, Jesus is coming back to judge. But until then, preach the word. Keruks, it means to proclaim. You're like a town crier. You're speaking out warnings and exhortations. 
the actions of preaching are at the end of verse 2. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and then the attitude with complete patience. Like an athlete, like a farmer, like a soldier. You're just doing the work as an athlete, playing by the rules, as a soldier, head down, working, fulfilling your mission, as a farmer, sowing seed, plotting, furring the field, waiting for the harvest, waiting for the crops, in season, out of season, doesn't matter, you're ready to preach, pray, or die in a minute, you're giving the word of God. Romans 10, it's missions, it's evangelism. How will they call on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? This is why missionaries that don't preach, it does it, it's counterintuitive to a passage like this. Missions is preaching. It's other things, but like church, church is about preaching. Church is what Luther called a mouth house. It's preaching and singing and preaching and singing. That's church. If you don't have those dynamics going on, you don't have church. And with missions, you have to have preaching. How will people see Christ? That's what Paul is asking. How will they see and believe Where does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. That's the very next verse in verse 17. They see Christ by hearing. You hear the word and then you see Jesus Christ and love Christ by what you hear. It's communicating the word of God. 1 Corinthians 1.21, it's the wisdom of God. The world did not know God through worldly wisdom. It pleased God through the foolishness or the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Preaching doesn't always make sense to people. You preach Christ, a God who took on humanity and stayed God and then died and then rose the third day. And that means everything to human history and your eternity. That's foolishness to people, but that's what we preach. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5, my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and the power, your faith might, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's about Christ. It's about his word. It's about his power. Ephesians 4, 11, 12 says that to mature a body and for it to grow, God gave gifts to the body. And so there are many different people in the church. In the early church, apostles and prophets, that's the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 reflects that. Then you have evangelists. You have pastors and teachers. You could combine that role because a shepherd elder is able to teach, is gifted to teach. And some of you aren't elders or shepherds, and maybe you should be, but many of you are teachers and you're called to do this. And perhaps some of you are called to be preachers. That's why we're bringing a seminary here, because we want to train preachers preaching the word of God. Why? It's for the building up of the body of Christ. It's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's to propel you to be on mission and to look like and act like and sound like Jesus Christ. That's why we have preaching. What's amazing in my experience is this is the apex moment of my week. This is what everything in my week builds toward is these moments, these breaths, these words, these moments with you. 
And then I, like you, begin to, as soon as I hit this point, go into a state of digression where the word and the authority is as potent as it can be in my life right now, and it should be in yours. And then you have to keep filling yourself with the word of God personally and individually and in Bible studies and in community groups and in Sunday school classes and however you do it. But then we need preaching again, and we hit preaching again. And and that's the rhythm of preaching. It's the lather, rinse, repeat method of spirituality. You come, you hear the word of God, you repent of things, you clarify things, you discover things about yourself and about Christ, and you start all over again. Why? Because the word of God brings sanctification. John seventeen seventeen, Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's the truth. Sanctify them in ha'alathia. It's not just philosophical truth. When you hear preachers that are slick and personality-based, which I'm neither, so I'll never do anything but exposit the word. I mean, you can never, I'm never taking my show on the road because there is no show to take on the road. There's nothing else here. I, it's sanctify them. People grow in holiness by ha'alathia, by the truth, by the 66 books of scripture that we are given. Romans 16, 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Preaching, it encourages believers. They live in hope through suffering. That's what preaching is for. Acts 14, 21, this was Paul's testimony. He said, they preached the gospel to that (coughs) city and had made many disciples and returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. There's strengthening, there's encouraging that should come from preaching. And praise God, we can hear good, solid preaching, world-class preaching on our iPhones or whatever technology you have access to now. You should be listening to preaching all the time. Preaching is indispensable for church life and ministry. Listen to Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. Until I come, Timothy, again, go on visitation, you know, get a good website. No, 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 no. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and teaching. What do you do? Read the Bible, exhort from the Bible, which means call people to holiness, call people to things, and then explain, then teach from the Bible. And you're not supposed to do it in a shrinking way or a nervous way. Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, with all authority. The word of God is the authority, not Titus or Timothy. The authority isn't in and of the preacher or an elder or any spiritual leader. We have no authority. The word of God is the authority. It's always that way. The Roman Catholic Church gets it backwards. They believe that the authority of the church created the Bible. They were the ones who organized and said what comes and goes and all of that. And on that basis and on that tradition, they're holding 
themselves as a higher authority or tradition as an equal authority to the word of God. But really, it's a higher authority because they're saying they assembled it. It was never that way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth by saying with the spoken word, let there be light. The beginning was the word and the word was God and was with God and was God, right? Jesus is that word and the word has come to us by the Holy Spirit and we have it and it is our authority. It is our binding rule. It is our canon for which we follow. So if we want to be like Christ, we go on mission like he did, Luke 4, 43. He said to them, I must preach. I must. Do you hear the passion in that? I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Jesus, like Paul, I must preach. Woe is me if I don't preach. It's a fire shut up in my bones. I have to say something. I have a message that needs to be communicated. You stuff it in your heart all week long in the study, and then it's got to come out. Christ saves and sanctifies and strengthens his church through preaching. So my main role and my duty and calling, I fight for this every week because there's a lot of different things that pull me from this task, rightly so, but it's a fight to understand that my main role and duty and calling is preaching. And nine years ago when I came, I didn't bring expository preaching here. This is a mouth house in Anchorage. This is a... a church with the tradition and the continuity of expository preaching. Two things sort of hallmark this place. One is expository preaching and then Christian education. That's our reputation, but it's a good reputation and it's a biblical one. I didn't bring expository preaching here. I'm just trying to fit into the flow of the expositors who've gone before and the expositors who will take it on for years and years and decades and decades to come. 1 Timothy 5.17 says that an expositor should be freed to do this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And there's a particular elder who should have a calling or some, some who have the calling to study the word of God. It says especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Those who work in preaching and teaching. Those whose, whose vocation is preaching and teaching. So the emphasis of expository preaching is a good one, and it was in the inception and the soil of this church 40 years ago. It's the continuity of witness on the corner of Huffman and Pentail. Lord willing, it'll always remain that way here. Number two, what is expository preaching? I guess I've kind of explained that some so far. It's different than topical preaching. It's setting forth the meaning in its original, historical, grammatical, authorial context. It's trying to go back in time into the scripture and to see what's there with all clarity in with historical accuracy, with grammatical accuracy, and with what the author was communicating then and there. It's getting as close to how the, the inspired scripture is clear as, as you can get to it. It's flying low to the text. It's the idea that 
the, the Holy Spirit was up to something back then and there. Now what is he up to as you clarify the context historically then and there? So what does it now mean for now and today for you? It's reproving, it's rebuking, and it's exhorting. Turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah. I want you to go to Nehemiah chapter 8 really quickly. This is a fascinating beginning to expository preaching. You know, Ezra and Nehemiah, those partner books of the Bible, speaking of how the children of Israel had been taken away into Babylonian and Assyrian captivity, and they were finally delivered back to Israel. The remnant had returned home. They rebuilt the temple back in the way that God wanted it. And then Nehemiah speaks to rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the walls. And Ezra is standing out as a expositor because in Ezra 7.10, it says that he had set his heart to study the law of God. And so one of his primary duties coming back as a spiritual leader with this remnant was to put his heart into the law of God. And in Nehemiah 8, it says, all the people gathered as one man. This is after 70 years, and, and, the, and the walls were rebuilt, and the water gate. And it says, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law. Bring the book of the law here. They'd been in captivity for 70 years. They're back home. The temple's being restored. The walls are being built. <coughs> now bring us the book that the law had, that the Lord had commanded Israel And so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. Think of it. Everybody, not just men, get the women, get anybody who can comprehend Scripture, get them under the book, under the law, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Here's the pulpit, verse 4. And Ezra and the scribes stood on a wooden platform and they had, that they had made for that purpose. Skip down, verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people and he's opened it as he opened it. All the people stood, so they stood in reverence to the reading of God's word that was being read all day long. And Ezra blessed the Lord and the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord and their faces to the ground. This is reverence. This is Isaiah 66, trembling at the word of God. Look at verse 8. Well, verse 7, I'm going to skip all the names, but it helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. In verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's expository preaching. It's reading it. It's explaining it. It's giving the sense of what's there. And it's sensing and feeling the reverence of the Bible. This is why I typically pick a book of the Bible like we just went through Galatians and I go book by or verse by verse in sequential consecutive exposition so that you can get into the flow and so that of the text and you can get swept up into what's really there. When I was doing my doctoral studies, I read uh, one of the four volumes of the history of preaching by Hughes Oliphant Old. 
the reading and preaching of scriptures and the worship of the Christian church. And he chronicles preaching from the Old Testament, from the beginning of preaching to modern day. And he was talking about a, a modern day preacher who is an expositor. And I want you to guess who he's talking about here. He said, here's a preacher who has nothing in the way of a winning personality, good looks or charm. Who'd want to be this guy, right? Here's a preacher who offers nothing in the way of sophisticated homiletical packaging. No one would suggest that he's a master of the art of oratory. What he seems to have is a witness of true authority. He recognizes in Scripture the Word of God, and when he preaches, it is Scripture that one hears. It is not the words of this preacher that are so interesting as it is the Word of God is of its surpassing interest. That is why someone comes and listens. You have to guess who he was talking about. Ask me afterwards. So Anchorage Grace Church, it centers its life and focus on the word in this way. Expository preaching is what will predominantly be here on Sunday mornings, and and it's because of all these obvious reasons. Well, number three, expository preaching differs from other kinds of preaching, from topical preaching. Topical preaching, like what I'm doing today, is like preaching a chapter in a book. It is. It's taking a theme and taking people Uh, to and through that single theme and using scripture to buttress that theme. And there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with clarifying a topic. But eventually, you're going to run out of material because you're not dealing with the well that's here in the Bible, where you're going into the Bible and coming out from that well with truth again and again with an endless supply of what's there. Instead, you have preachers who will preach on social justice, on humility, on good things, on giving, on, on how to be holy in the Christian life. Those are good things to think through. And I affirm some topical preaching. We're doing topical preaching all through the summer. So obviously I affirm it. But ultimately, you don't want to run out of what's on the preacher's heart in terms of your feeding right? You're feeding and feeding and feeding, and eventually your feeding is going to run dry because your feeding and your eating and drinking can only go to the level of the mind of the preacher because typically the preacher knows what he's going to say, and he goes back to the Bible to support what he's going to say instead of in reverse. The preacher assembles various texts and various parts of the Bible and combines them with illustrations and anecdotes and weaves it all together around one single topic. You could use a single text and still do that, and it's still topical preaching. If you're coming with your thought to the text, that's topical preaching rather than having thoughts flow from a deep study from the text. So people have regularly said to me, don't change your preaching style. Well, I really don't have any t- intent to do that because I can't. I don't know how to preach topically. I mean, this is just me just going for it. But really, I'm comfortable in the Bible. That's it. That's, that's all you'll ever get with me. When I study the Bible, and this is what's amazing about expository preaching. When I study the Word of God, I go into a study of a paragraph, and I think I know what's there. 
I mean, you've done this. If you do an in-depth Bible study, you think you know what's there. And then when you start digging around and you start to see the lay of the land and it's set in its original context, or you do a word study where words begin to pop off the page and connect together, that becomes the main point of what is put on my heart by God, and that's what I preach. And typically what I thought was the main point isn't the main point, and then I find the main point, and that's the main point for the sermon. And then in the province of God, it becomes something that you and I can't live without. We needed to hear that. Well, how does that happen? Well, the Spirit of God is harmonizing all that dynamic where you go, man, I just heard about that main point from this book or this resource or this crisis in my life, and then I'm here, and then out of like... Nehemiah 8, this main point hits me and changes my life. And I'm hanging on to something that Nehemiah said 4,000 years ago. I don't know. The Spirit of God does those things for us. It wasn't exactly 4,000. But anyway, a couple millennia ago and then add some hundreds of years. I got it. See, it's what happens when I do topical preaching. There we go. There we have it. Expository preaching is not verbal commentary. It's unfolding the word of God and getting out of the way. It's a service to the word of God. You're serving truth. C.H. Spurgeon said the word of God is a cage lion. All you have to do is let it out. The expositor allows a regular flow of books of the Bible to harmonize into the congregation's life. Listen. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. And so we want to get as close as we can to his mind so that he changes our lives. I don't want you to get close to my mind as a preacher. You don't understand I'm not a very intelligent person. Part of why I think the Lord uses me is because I know who I'm not. And all I can be is an instrument to get into the word and hold the word up and hold Christ up before you, not myself. And the Lord uses people like that who are willing to get out of the way. And that's why many of you should become teachers and preachers of the word of God. The deeper I can go into the text and the clearer I can make it, the, the clearer you can see Christ, the clearer you can understand the word of God and what God is telling you to do. Pastors accept the the authority of Scripture all the time, but don't preach expositionally. And they can never preach more than they knew when they began the whole exercise from start to finish. I got that from Mark Dever. I just thought that was an interesting thought. Preacher's commitment is to exposit Scripture. It says one homiletics or preacher teacher told us in seminary, sit your backside in the chair until the work is done. It's true. should always hear new things that you never intended to hear before when you're under the exposition of Scripture. Well, point four, why expository preaching transforms lives. It matures the saints. Again, Ephesians 4 talks about the maturing of the body of Christ by giving gifted preachers or pastors and teachers. Colossians We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ, Colossians 1.28. In the Reformation time, the Roman Catholic Church had a Latin motto, semper idem, which means always the same. The The Reformed churches had a motto too that was semper motto, ecclesia, reformata, semper reformanda, secundum, verbum dei. 
And that is the church reformed, always being reformed according to the word of God. Healthy church means healthy hearers who are not set in stone. Well, I know that, heard that, was there during that sermon series, you know, that, you know, whatever, we don't ever need to do anything differently. And that's how I am. You know, that's not healthy church. Healthy church is I'm a hearer of the word of God and I'm always reforming. I'm always committed to growing and going and being more and more like Christ transformed from one stage of glory to the next. That's healthy church. That's God's spirit directing his church by the word of God. He's always directed through the word of God, by the way. I said this before, let there be light. Genesis 1-3, that's a pretty early verse in terms of the word directing everything. God directed Abraham by calling him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, directing him, saying, I'm giving you a land, a seed, and a blessing, a promise. God spoke through a burning bush to Moses. Go be the figurehead for the redemption of the people of God. God commanded through the word that he wrote with his finger on the Ten Commandments, on the two tablets of stone, Exodus 20. Israel's kings, when they were put in place, the first call to duty for them was to handwrite their own personal copy of the law as, it's, as, as it was their record. And the reason they were to do this, listen to this. He shall write for himself, this is Deuteronomy 17, 18, a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priest shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of the law and his statutes and doing them. This is why I type through my manuscript every week and edit it and revise. It's to try to be precise, but then look at verse 20 that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. This is the king of Israel, that his heart wouldn't be lifted up. What keeps a heart tame? Knowing the word of God, being directed by it. So he won't be swayed to the right or the left. Elijah the prophet, he heard from God, show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. Elijah wasn't a superhero, who could pray and stop things with his voice. He just knew God's timetable. God told him, I'm going to stop the rain for three and a half years. Hey, Ahab, guess what? I'm coming as a prophet of God. God's going to dry the land for three and a half years. And he comes back and says, hey, it's coming back, you know, and comes. And it may appear that Elijah was something special, but really, as James 5 puts it, he was a man with a like nature as ours. Ezekiel 37, we don't have time to unpack this. This is talking about the resurrection of the nation of Israel after it was going to be destroyed. This was a prophetic vision of Israel being laid low, and it was. And it was never the same again after it was laid low as a nation in A.D. 70. But the prediction of the dry bones in the valley is really a spiritual prediction of Israelites who are going to be believers in the end, the resurrection. And that comes by the Spirit of the Lord, Ezekiel 37 one, but look at verse three, son of man, can these dry bones live? Verse four, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Verse five, I will cause breath to enter you. I will lay sinews upon you. I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. 
Look, Jesus is the word. He is the resurrection and the life. He called Lazarus forth. He resurrected himself. And we too will be resurrected one day when the trumpet sounds because of the word of God. Verse 9 in Ezekiel 37. Prophesy to breathe to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and, o, and breathe on these slain that they may live. How do we call people to Christ? How do we awaken people to life? How do we call churches to health? Through preaching, through preaching. People are laid low in the valley. They're dead. They don't have life in them. They don't have life on them. They don't have sinew and flesh. They need to hear the preaching of the word of God. Verse 14, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Jesus said it to Satan. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, quoting Deuteronomy. Jesus said his whole ministry was bound up in preaching. The spirit of the Lord, Luke 4, 4, 17, is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Why? Why? He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Acts 2, Peter preached. He was expositing Joel 2 and Psalm 95 at Pentecost. Paul told Timothy to preach the word. Paul told Jude to contend earnestly for the faith. John, in in Revelation 22, at the end of our Bible, warns everyone that if you add anything to the book of Revelation, which really is an example of adding anything or taking anything from the word of God, let the plagues that are described in the book of Revelation be added to you. I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book, if anyone adds, I will add the plagues described in this book, he says. But at the end, John says, he who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. He's speaking for Christ. Amen. And John says, come Lord Jesus. We preach till Jesus comes back. Martin Luther said this about his ministry. He was asked, how did you get all this work done? I mean, we're still quoting him. He's written all these books that we're still using. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word did it all. When I was uh, 20 years old, 21 years old, I was at Liberty University, and I was trained by a homiletics professor. I really think I went to school there in Virginia to be under this man who taught me to study the Bible at the earliest age I could study it. I had learned to preach uh, before I learned to study, and he had to reroute some of that. I started preaching when I was 19. So a long time ago, I was learning the rudiments of how to use Greek and Hebrew and diagram it and analyze it and put it into outline form and preach. And he was, uh, he was a preacher teacher at Grace Theological Seminary. He trained the founding pastor of our church here, Larry Smithwick, at Grace in yesteryear, used the same overhead slides and transparencies transparencies he used with uh, me, and we joked about that. And while we were in preaching class, uh, one day, uh, Paul Fink, that preacher teacher, held up this book, and it's called Rediscovering Expository Preaching. And this was my copy, but it's 
you know, beaten up. I've read it. I've had to read it as core curriculum through several different, uh, through undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral work. This book is something I've read through quite a bit. Um, and in the in, in Leaf, it, it was signed by two professors at the Master's Seminary. This is when I'm in Virginia, and I'm hearing about these professors in California at this far-off school 3,000 miles away, east to west. And it was the dean of the seminary, Dick Mayhew, and George Zemick, who later became a mentor of mine in Little Rock, Arkansas, and trained me there. Um, but they both autographed the book, and they said, Paul, because they had been his students at Grace Theological Seminary, they said, thank you for teaching us the method. And so Paul Fink said, I never write books, but I train people so they can write the books later. You know, and he loved his book. Well, I want to finish by just uh, reading um, one of my favorite portions from this book. It's the least academic portion, so buckle up. It speaks of, it's, it's from the perspective of a congregant, a parishioner, who's an unknown author. He wrote this, and he's describing what it takes to preach the word. It says, fling him into his office, tear the office sign from the door, and nail on the sign, study. Take him off the mailing list. Lock him up with his books and his typewriter. It's dated. Typewriter and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before text and broken hearts and the flock of lives of superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in our surfeited communities who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all the night through and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth forever spouting remarks and stop his tongue forever tripping lightly over non-essential the non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God and make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone, again dated. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Put water in his gas tank. Give him a Bible and tie him to the pulpit and make him preach the word of the living God. Test him, quiz him, examine him, humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances, batting averages, and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it night and day. Quote, sir, we must see Jesus. When at long last he dares assay the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, then dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper and digest the television commentaries and think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's weary drives and bless the sordid baked potatoes and green beans ad infinitum better than he can. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up, worn and forlorn, and say, Thus saith the Lord. Break him across the board of his ill gotten popularity. Smack him hard with his own prestige. Corner him with questions about God. Cover him with demands for celestial wisdom, and give him no escape until he's back against the wall of the word. And sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left, God's word. Let him be totally ignorant of the downstreet gossip, but give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it, 
come at last to speak it backward and forward until all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. And when he's burned out by the flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace grace blazing through him, and when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to man, finally transferred from earth to heaven, then bear him away gently and blow a muted trumpet and lay him down softly. Place a two-edged sword in his coffin and raise the tomb triumphant. For he was a brave soldier of the word, and ere he died, he had become a man of God. I always like that part of the book. It's kind of wonderful and awful all at the same time, right? Well, the word of God is, uh, it's our passion, it's our life, and it's, it starts here, but it, it should be pervasive through all of the ministries of Anchorage Grace Church. And Lord willing, we will be healthier because we are faithful to open the word of God, all of us, and all of our teaching ministries. Let's pray for the series and pray for health together this summer.